Hello, and welcome to You Should Hear This, a podcast for the Everyday Association Professional. I'm Nick Estrada, your host. In today's episode, we'll talk about what you should be thinking about as an event planner or association for your events post-COVID. As states and cities begin loosening their COVID restrictions, we're seeing a quick return of in-person association events, both large and small. This quick return requires our associations to take several new factors and changes into consideration. Today, we speak with a seasoned event professional as he planned and navigated the return of Indy's first trade show post-COVID at the Indianapolis Convention Center. Joining me today is Kyle Jordan, CAE, CMP, CMM, CEM, Vice President of Membership and Meetings with the National Confectioners Association. NCA is a trade organization that promotes the unique role of chocolate, candy, gum, and mints in a happy, balanced lifestyle and the companies that make these special treats. Through advocacy and regulatory guidance, communications, industry insights, and retail and supply chain engagement, NCA helps create an environment that enables candy makers to thrive. Welcome, Kyle. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. You that sounds like the greatest association to work for, right? I mean, like who doesn't want to work for and I think your website is candyusa.org. Uh, and USA.com, right? like, but very close. Yes. 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 I mean, like who doesn't want to work for a company like that? I mean, it is a fantastic organization and I, you know, I'm new to the organization. I uh, joined the team uh, back in November and I always tell people uh, it's sort of like the devil wears Prada. It's the job a million girls wanted. Right. Um, and so I, and I have it. Uh, I, you know, I uh, followed uh, an esteemed predecessor who was with the organization for 27 years and really created the bulk of our strategic events, including the event that is now Sweets and Snacks Expo. So uh, the opportunity for me has been amazing and fantastic. And I work with a phenomenal team um, that's based out of Washington, D.C. And I'm looking forward to uh moving to the district later this fall to join them back in person as things reopen and our office reopens. So, yeah, that is very exciting. So tell us a little bit about your role at NCA. What do you manage? What do you oversee? And, and what's your responsibility for uh, event success? Sure. Uh, so I'm the VP of membership and meetings. And so I sort of split my time between both of that. And as a trade association, you know, we have approximately 400 plus members, depending, right? Obviously, with uh, COVID-19, you know, we saw some members fall by the wayside. Um, as our expo came back, we picked up some members. We've seen some acquisitions of companies, which is not uncommon uh, for a trade association to have, you know, companies that are purchased by another company um, and integrated in that way. Um, so our membership sort of fluctuates there. Um, but by being a trade association, obviously, we work with these companies, right? Many companies you've probably heard of, like Hershey's or Mars Wrigley, or smaller companies you may not have heard of, like Lily's or Choco Love or Elmer. Um, so there's a variety of different folks that we service. We also service, in addition to the folks who manufacture candy and chocolate gum and mints, we also service brokers and suppliers. So folks who make extruders and enrobers and all kinds of different technology that supports uh, the manufacturing of candy, uh, chocolate, gum and sweets. And so it's, it's really an exciting group of folks to work with. And then on the other side is our events. And so, you know, we have a, a few signature events, uh, including our Sweets and Snacks Expo, which is, you know, in some ways our sort of our Super Bowl, right? Um, as we talk about uh, bringing our NCA family together. But then we have a few other events like our State of the Industry Conference, our Washington Forum, 
um, our summer leadership summit, which we're actually doing in about uh, two and a half weeks. Um, and so my job there is to uh, work with the team uh, internally um, to make sure that we support the events in a way that enhances the member value proposition for the folks who are members of the National Confectioners Association. Um, and part of that is, or a large part of that, I should really say, is, is facilitating interactions and relationships, particularly with our manufacturers and retailers, um, while also understanding the scope around food safety and regulatory issues related to our industry. So in that, in that role, right, we want to make sure that the content that we provide, whether it's at our expo or our trade show, or our more sort of traditional meetings and events, that the content is really fresh and new and innovative with what's happening, right? Customer behavior and habits and trends shift all the time. And we've seen a huge shift in that. Uh, through the pandemic. And so part of our job there is to be a huge advocate, right? Um, it, we had a great Halloween campaign. Halloween is happening um, because, you know, back in October, people were like, is Halloween going to be a thing? Yes, yes. And it was a huge thing for our folks. Um, and so we were really excited about that. And our events, both digital and live, support that content and help um, our folks, uh, you know, maintain their position in the industry. Uh, and so we're really excited about that. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds really great. And it's interesting that you talk about the interactions and relationships piece, that that is one of the kind of the key components you're thinking about in your event success. And I think that that is really important when we talk about a return to a lot of our in-person events, right? That That's what's creating, I think, the distinction for why you would want to come to an in-person event. Um, that's what we're seeing that has fallen by the wayside, I think, during this move to digital. We've lost that connection. For sure. And when you think about you know, chocolate candy gum and mints, they are often social opportunities for folks, right? If you think of the holidays, if you think of the Super Bowl, right? Chocolate candy gum and mints are generally going to be involved in that, right? I mean, we look at, um, you know, candy and chocolate, just as people look at sports and music and entertainment, right? It is a part of our social fabric and our social culture. And so, you know, our folks wanted to come together. And quite frankly, we needed to come together. You know, we had two years of innovation that we weren't able to share with folks, right? And when I say with folks, I mean, not only retailers, but also in some instances, consumers. Now that doesn't mean there wasn't innovation happening. Mm -hmm. We saw tons of brand extensions occurring. Um, you probably heard all about some mores. There was a huge uptick in some mores, um, particularly for summer <laughs> events, right? And a lot of that was supported by our industry. But there are a lot of things that we wanted to be able to share with our retailers and consumers that we had to come together to be able to do that and to, to launch those products um, and launch those innovations. And so, you know, that was really one of the driving factors why we had to bring the expo to fruition uh, just a few weeks ago. I mean, it was super important for our industry. Absolutely. All right. So the Sweets and Snacks Expo, again, sounds like one of the coolest events to be able to go to. Um, as we mentioned in the opening, right, this was, uh, and, and when I reached out to you, it was because I saw a post that talked about the first trade show returning to the Indiana Convention Center. Um, and I was very excited to be able to know one of the people who was was working on that event and so reached out. But just kind of generally, how did the event go? Yeah, so, you know, I think as you think about events and what's happening in sort of a post-pandemic, and I, I want to add the caveat, right? I'm still very aware, and we are all still very aware that there, this is a global pandemic that is occurring. Um, and we have had many uh, advantages in terms of the luxury of having a high vaccine rate and those things, which were key to helping us actualize this event. So I, I want to make sure that we put that out there, that we're aware that that's happening. Mm -hmm. And 
we were able to bring that event together uh, because of our strong partnership with the city of Indianapolis and visit Indy as a DMO um, or CVB, depending on what, how you prefer to call them. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were able to bring together over 450 exhibitors, you know, more than 2,500 retailers across, you know, 1,500 plus different banners across the variety of our trade. We had over three acres of candy and snack innovation in the ICC just two weeks ago, right? Um, and so for us, that was a success, right? Bringing people back together and moving the industry forward was important to us. Did it look exactly like our last actualized trade show in 2019? No. Was it smaller? Yes. Was the vibe positive this year? Absolutely. Uh, the amount of interaction that we saw um, and the intentionality behind those interactions was off the chart, right? I, and I don't have a good way to tell it other than being a, you know, someone who qualitatively observed it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I walked the trade show floor. I shared this several times internally of those 450 plus exhibitors. I visited uh, about 137. It was 137 or 139, right? Over the course <laughs> of two and a half days. I had some really sore feet because, you know, I, like everybody else, has forgotten what it's like to walk in dress shoes on a concrete floor. Uh, <laughs> but I sure made my way uh, to a fair number of our exhibitors, mostly manufacturers, but also our supplier showcase, really engaging with folks. And what I consistently heard was, this was important for the industry, and we're so glad to be back together. So using that as a metric, right, that's successful. Do I know that business was written and deals were made? Absolutely. I know that happened. I heard it from a, a number of folks. And so that is also important because it keeps the industry moving forward and business happening. Um, but again, the, the strongest undercurrent there was, we're glad to be back together. And this is important for the confectionery industry. I think we're hearing that, uh, especially for trade associations, right? That comment of it's important for the industry to be able to show that they can come back together I think we're seeing that even in professional associations as well, that it's important to come back together. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned, right, that we recognize that there is still a pandemic happening. We recognize that spread is still occurring, um, which leads me a little bit then to my next question um, in terms of for your event, what choices did you all make in terms of restrictions, regulations around event attendance in terms of COVID? Yeah, well, I could tell you that that was evolving from the moment that we decided we were going to do this, right? I and can so, imagine. Uh, yeah, as I as I mentioned, I came on the team in uh, November, um, but back in June or July prior to my arrival, so June or July of 2020, um, the decision was made that we needed to look at an alternate venue for our 2021 show, just due to the restrictions that were in place at the time, um, and what could we do to actualize an event. And so with our official services contractor, our general services contractor, um, the leadership of our board and our executive team, uh, the decision was made to look for an alternate destination for 2021. And our partners at Visit Indy and in the city of Indianapolis came to us with a plan and said, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> here's what we're doing. Here are the things that we plan to do. You know, over $7 million of improvements to the Indiana Convention Center, um, health safety planning, all of those things, right? Um, and then the announcement was made. I believe, I'm going to say, I think it was made uh, in the second week of October. I had just been hired. I mean, I literally had accepted the job two days prior um, when the announcement was made that we were moving to Indianapolis. Um, and so when I came on in November, you know, obviously a lot of things had already been started, 
but things were happening all the way up until the day of the event, to the start of the event, right? Um, changes were happening, but we had worked with the Marion County Health Department to submit our, our plan um, for how we were going to reduce risk, how we were going to mitigate risk. And at the beginning, that looked like a lot of different things than what actually actualized. And that was mostly because things changed so much in the 60, but really the 30 days prior mm-hmm. to the expo happening. So for us, you know, we uh, initially had thermal scans. We had a app that folks had to participate in um, every day to go through and assess their health um, and where they were at prior to entering the show. Um, the convention center had one-way aisles, both in the, the common areas and the pre-function spaces. We had wider aisles. We had one-way directionals. Masks were required. You know, all of those were part of our health and safety plan going in. Food and beverage was reduced in most instances. Um, we had no receptions. Um, there was one outdoor gathering of about 40 people. And that was added very late in the game, simply because so many of the environmental conditions changed that we felt comfortable enough offsite mm-hmm. to have an outside event. And so, and so we did um, with 30 or 40 people. Uh, and it was, it was a success, but really we stuck to our food and beverage, right? No receptions, none of that. Um, we did um, some spacing for our educational programs. I sat in an educational program where I sat in a chair and there was nobody to my left and nobody to my right for at least six, probably closer to eight feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what our, our participants you know, were able to experience as we went through. So, you know, again, we really partnered with the Indiana Convention Center, Visit Indy, the city of Indianapolis, and quite frankly, in some instances, even the state of Indiana um, to be able to actualize this event. And it was those partnerships that allowed us as things were on sort of this ongoing and rolling change for us to be able to quickly maneuver and say, okay, well, we're gonna maybe back this off. And I'll use as an example, thermal scanning. So originally everybody was gonna have their temperature taken. Well, in the 60 days, really 45-ish days before the event, we recognized that that really, with everything else that was happening, probably didn't make any sense. And so we removed that requirement from the health and safety plan, um, but we still had thermal scanners, if you will, in certain places, high density places, that if somebody did walk past it and register an above uh, grade temperature, that they would be flagged and pulled aside. And then we would take them to a private area and then work through that process, right? Which would in- include rescreening, some additional questioning, things of those natures. And then ultimately, you know, we would make the decision if necessary um, to, you know, ask them to not come into the show that day. You know, I will say as a, as a business to business expo, we are not open to the public. So that mm-hmm. helps. We know a lot of our folks. Um, and by know them, I mean, it's a very family industry. Some of our folks are second, third, fourth generation candy makers, right? Um, So we know them, we've known them for a long time. Um, And so there's a trust factor there, right? Part Mm -hmm. of that. Um, But we also said, we're not going to ask for for verification of of vaccination. That was a very early decision. That's complicated for a lot of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And internally, we worked through that dialogue and that conversation about what that should look like and where we should go uh, with it. And ultimately, that was not a part part of our health and safety plan at any any point in time. Um, And so, yeah, that's, I think that that sort of really encapsulates where we, where we were from the beginning to sort of how we worked through it. Uh, At the end, masks were still required, right? So at the end of the day, masks were still required, you know, um, mask adherence, that was a little different, right? (laughs) Um, And, and I mean, that's just a reality. That's been a reality at not only events 
that I lead, but also events that I've attended. Um, you know, I, I attended an event back in October of 2020 where mass compliance was required, but still very low. And so I think that that's just a thing that we as meetings professionals uh, uh, and events professionals need to really be mindful of is what does that look like and, and how do your policies address that? And, you know, what is your enforcement and how strict are you going to enforce that? And, you know, there's a, there's a variety of different um, factors that go into helping make that decision. But for us, it was, we maintained the max, the mask requirement, even though Marion County had re- removed it um, literally, I think two weeks before we got there. Right. So uh, yeah. Indianapolis obviously made it through the 500 masks were required at the 500. We also know adherence wasn't super high there as well. Like you can see it from the video <laughs> if you watch the race. Um, but once the city successfully got through the 500, um, you know, I think they, they made the decision and rightfully so they are able to make that decision, right? That's the whole purpose of government and, and their mm-hmm. role. Um, and they made that decision, but we continued with the mask requirement. So. Cool. As you were making those decisions, you know, especially around the mask um, conversation, right? Cause I'm sure that was a, uh, hey, came into the office, I have an email, Indy's made this decision, what do we do now, right? Who who was involved in those decisions as you guys were coming to the table? Yeah, I mean, again, I think I cannot stress enough and emphasize enough the relationship that we had with the Indiana Convention Center, Visit Indy, and the city of Indianapolis. And you're going to hear me say that a million times <laughs> over. And for those of you who are part of ISAE, you should be really proud of your city. We were very proud of your city. Um, the collegial nature of the relationship that we had, you know, we were aware that the conversation was coming up. We knew that that was going to be on the docket ahead of time, right? Now, was it was it a great fear on our part as the planners? Yes, absolutely, because we had entered into a social contract with our participants that these were going to be the requirements, mm-hmm. right? And so the fact that some of those shifted, um, you know, sometimes that's out of your control, the same way that a weather event might be out of your control, political unrest might be out of your control, a labor strike might be out of your control. These are things you have to plan for. Um, And again, our teams worked so well together, right? Uh, We had weekly conversations with the Indiana Convention Center, with Visit Indy, where we were constantly talking about possible changes and what that might look like. We obviously uh, greatly involved our general service contractor through that process and our other partners, whether it was AV or food and beverage at the center and what that looked like. You know, we still stuck with, you know, individually wrapped food and beverage, right? So as I said, we, we, we tr- traditionally have different food offerings um, and receptions at the event. For us, anything that we offered was prepackaged. That's what it was, right? Now, did center did the catering service make it? Absolutely. They followed all the health and safety precautions and guidelines to do it, but you were still getting your sandwich in the clamshell, mm-hmm. right? Which if everybody knows, right, nothing more exciting than, you know, eating your meal out of a clamshell. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, we did that in, in partnership with all of those entities and it was rolling and it was ongoing. But, you know, I will tell you, Participants of any event are very astute. As soon as the change happened in Marion County, we heard about it and we knew about it. Uh, And we heard about it not only from our partners, but from our participants (laughs) uh, because they were aware of what was going on. I mean, many of our folks had been monitoring it the same way we were monitoring it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were very proactive in our communication. We were very clear on what our social contract was with our participants and what our expectations were. And in some instances, did that impact people's decision? Sure. Mm -hmm. We had some people who said, you're still requiring masks. I don't want to wear a mask, so I'm not coming. Okay, that's okay. Um, We had to be okay with that. 
but we couldn't, what we couldn't do is go back and say, well, now we're not going to require masks um, for those folks that we had in, in, engaged in or entered into that contract with, right? We have to be true to our word and to our values and, and what that means. And at the time, yes, things had evolved a little bit differently, but we needed to default back to what we agreed upon when we opened our registration and what we had promised our participants. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting approach. Uh, and I also very much appreciate that you're referring to it as a social contract. Uh, you know, I think I've seen a lot of other names out there, you know, duty of care, um, you know, agreement or the attendee agreement or, you know, whatever phrase you want to put around kind of those responsibilities of the attendee. Um, but I like this contract idea because it, it shows that the association has a responsibility to the attendee as well, just like the attendee has a responsibility to the association. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, and I can't even tell you where that, where we evolved that term from, um, but it's a term we've been using fairly regularly internally. And, and I think it is more representative to your point of exactly what the purpose of this mutual agreement was, right? It has to be mutual in this type of environment for this event to actualize and actualize successfully. It requires both parties or all parties to agree, right? And it doesn't mean that there might not be disagreement on certain things or, um, you know, what your thought or approach is to masks, which have, be have been very controversial in certain instances or locations or destinations, um, you know, and some organizations have made choices to take their events away because of changes in policy. Mm -hmm. I think our, our agreement all the way around was to our members, but also to the residents and visitors of Indianapolis, and that we would agree to provide a safe event in the city, right? We're bringing people into your city. So we also have an obligation and a commitment to the city. And, and so those are all really important elements that we considered as we looked at, you know, this health and safety plan. Um, and that's why it actualized the way that it did. Now, again, it didn't actualize 100% the way that it started, um, but we're certainly happy with where we were at um, at the end of the event. That's fantastic. I know you've mentioned some changes that the event, uh, you know, had as you were beginning the planning process. You know, how, how was the reaction from your attendees to some of those? And which of those stayed, you know, because I know you mentioned quite a few, right? Were one-way aisles still a thing? Were wider aisles still a thing on site? Um, how, what was just the general reaction for folks? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> the number one uh, concern was we did not have carpet. So normally our show mm. is carpet all throughout and it's gorgeous and it's color coded. And I mean, it's, a, it's quite an amazing site. I've seen it in pictures. Um, but when you imagine the amount of square feet that we have for that to all be carpeted, you know, that has an impact on people's feet. And because this again is a B2B trade show where people are literally on their feet from nine until five, and most people, quite frankly, hadn't been on their feet like that for 16 months, right? right. Um, and so it was uncomfortable. And in many instances, it was physically uncomfortable. And I will tell you, even for me, who walks every day and runs every day, like my feet were sore, really sore at the end. And so, um, you know, we made that decision because it was part of our health and safety plan, right? Um, and so even though that changed, you know, there's also a ton of procurement issues right now, right? Supply chain logistics, right? It, even if we had wanted to change and put carpet back in, you know, at the last minute, which is sort of, you know, really <laughs> you, the last minute for carpet is probably 60 days out. 
I don't know that we would have been able to get it, um, mm-hmm. quite frankly, right? There's just so many supply chain and logistics issues right now. And so uh, that was probably our number one concern that we heard from folks. Um, we did have wider aisles just based on reduced, you know, that was our plan anyway, but also based on um, a reduction in our number of exhibitors. Um, so we were able to widen out some of those spaces. Um, we did have one-way aisles, you know, again, adherence to that, very challenging, right? And and when you think about this uh, from a logistics standpoint as a planner, if you are going to do one-way aisles, you know, floor stickers aren't that effective. Uh, you know, think about your grocery store. It's not that effective. It's not in your, it's not in your line of sight in your, in your eye line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then trying to put a 22 by 28 easel up in the middle of an aisle is also not really conducive to anything. And so it's more of a logistical challenge really than I think an adherence issue. I think mm-hmm. most people, even though we had advertised it, there was no way for us to put a staff person at every single aisle point and be like, you know, here's the, here's the green sign. You can go down here. Oh, here's the red sign. You're going the wrong way. Like it just, it, it wasn't a reality. It couldn't, it couldn't work that way. Um, but I do think the wider aisles did facilitate more of a true sort of left, right, more of a traditional sort of road, you know, I'm walking this way. So I'm going to be on the right side. I'm walking this way. So I'm going to be on the left side. I saw more of that happening. Um, and I don't know if it was organic or intentional or, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating behavior to watch participant behavior. Um, but I do think the wider aisles certainly helped with that. We talked about the food and beverage piece, obviously, um, you know, that was an important part of our shift, you know, I think receptions. Um, and again, this is my opinion, not necessarily the opinion of the Confectioners Association, but my opinion is, is that receptions right now are still a pretty high risk activity, right? Mm. Um, you know, mass compliance is very low, the introduction potentially of alcohol and food and beverage, it just, it's difficult. And I say that, you know, for us, as a food trade show, right? Mm-hmm. Where samples are a huge part of that. And that was probably our biggest change is that traditionally, you know, because we are sweets and snacks, right? Think about popcorn, great example, right? Nobody gets a giant sample bag of popcorn, right? Like you just even think about like the bag that you pack with your lunch, right? Just one of those individual serving bags. That's a big sample, right? When sampling. And so, you know, we used to be able to just, have these dump bins where there'd be large amounts of product poured in and, Mm. you know, there would be a scoop, a small scoop and those kinds of things. Well, we had to rethink all of that. And a lot of our folks don't package individual or single size uh, packages or containers of their product. So that, you know, made the biggest impact for us, right? Again, fudge, I'll use fudge as an example, right? Mm. Traditionally cut in slices and small slices, really hard to prepackage that. And so a lot of our manufacturers did a phenomenal job and were able to prepackage stuff in their own sort of branded and, and logoed um, wrappers. In mm-hmm. some instances, some of our smaller folks used little souffle cups with stickers on them. Um, and so that was probably the biggest change or hurdle um, when thinking about how do folks share product with prospective customers, right? Uh, and and that was something we worked on from the very, very beginning. I mean, when I joined the team, that conversation was already well underway. But again, it was part of our health and safety plan with Marion County um, and the ICC and what that was going to look like. And I will say that adherence was very high. I mean, just watching how folks distributed their samples this year was really great. Now, granted, I don't have a, a way to look at it in the past other than the pictures, but I know that people were very pleased with how that transaction occurred, right? In terms of people felt safe and they were able to taste products safely. We did have some tasting areas on the floor that people could mm. go to and remove their mask. Again, we did allow people to um, taste or sample a product at the booth. Cause again, 
if you're tasting a product, you want to be able to talk with the person, like, here's what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. Here's the flavor profile or, or whatever that, that interaction or conversation is. We want that to be able to happen in that space. Right. And so we did, that was a part of our health and safety plan. You could lower your mask, sample the product and raise, re-raise your mm -hmm. mask. Um, and so that worked, that worked well also. And so, yeah, I think that was probably the, the biggest, like really change logistical change. When you think about how the exhibitors interact with retailers or other folks visiting the booths was how are they going to distribute their sample in a safe, effective, and meaningful way. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, obviously for trade groups, that booth is such an important component, right? That's you've kind of quote unquote captured the consumer in your space and you don't want to lose them. So I, I'm glad to hear that you were able to kind of implement something that allowed them to stay there, um, have those conversations because I'm, I'm sure your, your members found those extremely important and impactful for their attendance. All right. I do want to make a little bit of a shift here. I follow all of the um, state senators and the governor here in Indiana. Uh, and so all over Facebook, all over LinkedIn, I saw that you had some special guests. And I think, you know, what's interesting with this, right, even in a non-pandemic year or a non-kind of pandemic event, having any kind of political figure, I think, at your event is an interesting challenge, right? Just from any kind of logistics to manage them, even just showing up, right? Um, so just kind of talk me through what unique challenges did you guys experience? What logistics did you have to manage um, to get those folks to, to participate? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The city really reached out to us about these interactions, which I think shows how invested the political leadership in the state of Indiana and the city of Indianapolis are in having trade shows back, right? Um, so uh, they approached us, <laughs> which is fantastic. I, I'm not gonna lie. This is very exciting for us. You know, we had the governor, the lieutenant governor, and then the mayor of Indianapolis uh, present. Um, uh, and the governor and the mayor specifically were present for our ribbon cutting, which was very exciting mm. for us to do. But, you know, I think with any kind of logistics, you have to worry about the safety and security of any type of dignitary that comes, right? And what does that look like and how do you do that on short-term notice and you know and their teams were fantastic to work with our comms team and our advocacy team um, do a fantastic job of engaging um, with the leadership whether it's at the local regional state or federal level um, and so you know they know how to do this <laughs> and they do it well and so you know I think for us it, the biggest concern is always timing. I'm not going to lie. Like, let's be clear. You can write or run a show as well as you want. And you could say, this is when we're going to start and do this. And it's never going to start on time. Just never. Right. Um, and so build that slippage time in, you know, that's my, that's my key takeaway for folks is build that slippage time in. Mm -hmm. We definitely were a little bit behind, not terribly behind, but a little bit behind um, in doing that. But, you know, again, I also think, you know, just given everything that's going on, public appearances right now, I think are still you know, at the discretion of those folks, right? Um, and what folks want to do, whether it's entertainment or those in political leadership, right? Um, and that's always going to be a challenge, uh, you know, even just booking them. But right now there's that added layer of what does that safety or security look like for them, right? Not just in addition of like, well, they're going to bring their security guards and we've got entry points and, you know, mm -hmm. egress points and all of those things. Um, but just, you know, who do they encounter? Who are they near? Who are they not near? All of those things. And so, uh, you know, again, the, the teams worked really well together um, to coordinate those visits and they were well received. I mean, uh, I know both the governor and lieutenant governor spent a significant amount of time on our floor, um, on our trade show floor, visiting our exhibitors, having conversations, 
thanking them for being there, being in the state of Indiana and the city of Indianapolis, um, just as much as our folks were thanking them for the opportunity to be there, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The gratitude around this event is something that in my 15 plus years of events, I've never seen this kind of gratitude, um, which is fantastic. It's so exciting and I hope it sticks around. I hope, you know, folks recognize what it takes to pull off these kind of events and expos um, and how much partnership, and if you do it right, how much that partnership can positively impact the outcome of your event when it actualizes. Um, You know, it was just such a tremendous partnership. And so, and that, again, that's what I think led to the interest from the political leadership in the state of Indiana to want to be present. Yeah, that's very exciting. And, And I'm sure, again, just, I think we never realized the importance of these kinds of events until they were gone, right? Um, so I think we've had an opportunity to, when they come back, we're like, oh my gosh, this is great. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so to your point, I would agree. I hope that gratitude remains for these events. And I think our members overall, I think are starting to understand a little bit more that this is not just a light switch, right? That they just show up at an event and everything just works. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's one of those pieces. And I, I think as we look at, at the, industry, the hospitality industry in its entirety, right, which I, to me, includes food and beverage, our folks over at hotels and restaurants and the, and the economic engine that supports a city, a lot of our hospitality folks are hurting, right, in a variety of different ways, mm-hmm. but particularly with, with labor and staffing and, and shortages thereof. And I think, you know, part of that, that grace that was given by our participants was the fact that they're experiencing that in their own hometowns as well, right? Indianapolis is not immune. Mm -hmm. I'm in Denver, it's not immune. And I'm heading to DC tonight um, and DC is not immune, right? And so uh, we've all experienced that. And I think, you know, uh, people are really starting to understand what it takes to make the hospitality industry work. Our our industry Mm -hmm. and our profession was just decimated through this. And it still is. I mean, the recovery in our, uh, in our profession, our industry is very slow, even though there are a ton of jobs and the ramp up is going to take far longer than I think people really think about. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm looking at a recovery at the end of 22 when it comes to staffing, um, right? That's sort of my sort of current forecast of I'm looking, right? So don't hold me to it. But my forecast really um, is going to be quarter four of 2022 or quarter one of 23 with the way that the current shortages are impacting, right? Um, I was watching something this weekend uh, on television related specifically to hotel amenities and what's going to come back and what's not going to come back. And and when do they mm-hmm. think it's going to come back, right? Um, and a lot of those folks also agree, like quarter four, 22, you might see the return of housekeeping in your room. You might see the return of that, you know, that breakfast buffet, but in a different way than what you've seen it previously. Um, while currently, you know, room rates and RevPAR is increasing dramatically, right? People are back on the road. If you've been in an airport, which I've mm-hmm. been in an airport, Every month since June of 2020, um, and I say that again, June of 2020 was the first time (laughs) I took a flight. It was actually to Indianapolis, and I was in the Atlanta airport, and two of the six terminals were open. My flight to Indianapolis had like 15 people on it, all the way to when I flew to Indianapolis two and a half weeks ago. The airport was bustling. The restaurants are back open to some degree. Some things are still shuttered even in the airports because they can't have staff. Um, but people are traveling, right? And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, room rates are up. Um, airfare is up. If you're trying to book a flight, 
start booking your flight three, four, five months in advance again, like you used to, um, because there's not the load factor right now. There's not the equipment in the sky right now. Quite frankly, there aren't the support teams from flight attendants and even in some instances, pilots right now. So, you know, really be Mm -hmm. thinking about that as you're planning for events and where you're going and what does that look like? What's the potential impact to your participant? Um, You know, do you need Mm -hmm. to start talking about travel and hotel booking a lot sooner than you think? Um, Because I'll tell you, even in 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 a convention city like Indianapolis, people are traveling to Indianapolis. They're staying in your hotels, which is great. It's nice to see leisure back, but le- and leisure is, is rebounding well. And so, you know, you got to be mindful of that. You might not be able to have some of the, you know, uh, ability to add extra rooms if you need to add extra rooms, right? We all cut way back and then you go, oh, there's more people. I need to add rooms back. There may not be space to add back in some of these cities, depending on where you're going specifically if you are in a resort city, right? Be thinking about that. Um, I know we're Mm -hmm. experiencing that right now. You know, we were being really mindful of our block and block management um, and we over managed our block. And now I've got people that I can't put in rooms because there aren't places to put them right now. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see what is happening in our, in our hospitality industry. And I think that light really was turned on because of the pandemic and, was the huge cause of that gratitude um, that our participants extended to folks at the local businesses and establishments in the city of Indianapolis. I mean, we know that the the hotels and the servers and the hostesses and folks were coming to our folks and saying, are you with the candy show? Thank you for being here. And our (laughs) folks were like, thank you for having us. Thank you for being open. Thanks for, you know, serving us this amazing steak. You know, Uh, it, it was really cool to hear the stories. Um, uh, this will be one that we will tell stories about for a long time, what that meant or what it felt like coming out of this. Um, and, and that's pretty cool. I mean, it's a terrible thing, the pandemic, what has happened, but this outcome of some of these things as we're reopening, it's been really neat to see how people engage with others and care for others and give sort of that grace and gratitude. So. Absolutely. So as we look towards the future, Um, And I know you don't have a crystal ball here, right? So uh, we won't hold Kyle to anything here that he says if it doesn't come to fruition the way he says it will. But just what what do event professionals, membership folks, what do they need to be thinking about as we look towards the future for in-person events? You know, you're mentioning keeping that attendee perspective in mind. I think that is really important, right? Give them the heads up about booking earlier or any kind of deals that are out there for them. Um, But what else do we need to be thinking about um, as things start to return to, you know, again, what we would maybe now call the new normal, um, but things are still going to shift, uh, right? So what do, what do we need to keep an eye on? I think there's probably three-ish sort of things here, and I'm going to see if I can do really well at remembering all three, because as I get older, I have a hard time remembering the three things. But I think <laughs> first and foremost, we're going to have this really tight period of compression in the marketplace, right? So, you know, all those events that were in 2020 and 2021 have been rebooked in 2022 and 2023. So there is a lot of compression in spaces. And so my number one recommendation to folks is if you don't have an event booked for 22 or 23, you better start looking and consider some of perhaps your lower tier one, your upper tier two, a mid tier two, maybe even a tier three city for your event. Give your folks an opportunity to experience a new destination that you might not traditionally experience And that part of that's going to be driven by market conditions. I mean, I will tell you, uh, I've been keeping an eye out for what's happening. And there are cities that have no vacancy in 22 or 23. Um, And so, you know, uh, 
you, what you don't want to do is over manage your response, right? And figuring out mm-hmm. how you're going to spot your events or, or reposition your events. You need, to, you need to be looking at that now, which I think leads into part two of if you're willing to consider a new destination, which I think everybody should, um, you should also be looking at what else can you rethink about your program, right? Um, if you've had a large national trade show, or in some instances, a large international trade show, because I think international is going to be really slow for quite a while just due to requirements and travel and all the things that are going to happen. Um, you know, we know that there are some events that have been happening in Europe and Asia on very small scales um, in terms of trade shows, but, I, you know, sort of that traditional international trade show, I think is still very much in an unstable place. So rethink, right? If you have a large national, would your participants benefit more from two or three small regional events, right? Could you replicate your content, lower your attendance count, manage your block better, do all of those things by doing three regional events, right? Could you look at restructuring the format of your program and what you've always done, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm a big opponent of, we've always done it that way or traditional, it's this, mm-hmm. it's that. You know what, that's out the window, right? And people remember, well, we did this in 2019. You know, we did a lot of things in 2019 pre-pandemic, right? And so now is a great opportunity to sort of, leverage that and really sort of, you know, say, Hey, this is what I think, you know, we're going to do to, to reposition and refocus the event, right? You should always be looking at your event outcomes and your event objectives. Um, I think that that's really, really, really important. And I think that, and I think our attendees expect that now, right? I, I think in any experience that's out there, right? We don't expect to go back to a hotel and it be hundred percent the exact same way it was because to your point that you said at the very beginning of this, right? There's innovation now. There's new ways to do these things. And I think our attendees expect that from our events as well. Absolutely. And the other thing I'm going to tell you is data. Uh, and if anyone has ever been to a program that I have done, I talk about meetings data all the time and now I do membership. So now I'm creating our membership data structure and what that looks like um, at NCA. But this is really important. I, I remember back, I'm going to say it was probably June of 2020, July of 2020. I did a program and people, one of the, the number one questions asked of me was, how are you forecasting ahead? And I said, well, you know what I'm doing? I went back to 2009 and looked at our events following the mm-hmm. Great Recession. And I went back to 2001 and I looked at our events following 9-11. Um, and I looked at attrition, attendance patterns, all of those things. And some of you are going, 2001, it's 2021. You are correct. And when you have these key impactful events that impact your meetings, trade shows, what have you, you better be having data and you better keep that data in a safe place so you can go back and look at it. And I will tell you, so what we forecasted at the association I was at previous, um, when I was doing the budget right before I departed the organization, I budgeted for a 35% reduction in our event in quarter three of 2021, right? That event will actualize in October. It is going to actualize for that organization. And right now they're trending exactly with where I thought it was gonna be. I think they're trending right around 33% down, um, which is great. I mean, I, I wanna say like, Ooh, I'm magical. Um, I'm not, <laughs> I use data. And I'm not saying the data is gonna be perfect, but it will help paint a picture. And the other part of that data is you better start capturing your customer, your participant experiences and behavior desires right now, right? Now is a time to be looking at your surveys. If you're still asking about, did you like the conference chicken? You are already behind. You are not mm-hmm. asking important and impactful data points and data questions. Um, and you better be looking at your surveys, your post-event surveys. What are you asking and what are you doing with that data? Um, because right now, 
people are still doing surveys. When when the pandemic started, there was this huge uptick in people who are who the response rate of surveys because people didn't have anything else to do, so they were sitting at home reading their email and taking <laughs> surveys. I guess, um, but really, you know, what you do with data and how you capture data, I, I would like to say that this is going to be the last major thing that impacts events the way that it has, but it's not, we know it's not. We've had a great recession. We've had a terrorist attack. We've now had an environmental issue. There's always gonna be the potential of weather, right? Those kinds of things. If you don't have the data, then you are going to be behind. Uh, And so I I think for me, that is the biggest thing for meetings, professionals and association folks. The data you keep and maintain and capture is so important uh, and it gets overlooked so many times. And so, and you might be going, well, I'm not a data person. Well, you know what? I wasn't either, but I became one, right? I became the champion of our data initiatives at the last two associations I've worked at. Why? Because it helps me make smart business decisions, right? The things we do are calculated risks that are supported by data, right? That's how we make business decisions. And you know what? If I am wrong, which I am sometimes, I can always come back to my board and say, you know what? We, we missed the mark here by X or Y or whatever that was. But here was where the decision was rooted in. And people are like, you know what? That was, that was, that was pretty good. Like you, you thought it out, right? I always tell people like, if you come to me and show that you at least went through a thought exercise and showed sort of great intentionality about how you made the decision, I'm always going to support you in that decision, right? Versus just going, well, I think, you know, let's just say 50%. Events are going to be down by 50%. <laughs> what does that come from? I don't know. Okay. Well then we're, we're probably, that's probably not rooted in, in, in a good um, data set and, and you really need to go back and, and look at that. And so, you know, I'm a huge advocate for data. Um, and if you have questions about data, feel free to reach out to me. Like I'm, I'm sure that my content information will be uh, attached to this podcast. I can talk meeting and event data all day long and happy to, and happy to do it for anybody um, who's listening to this podcast. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Kyle. Thanks, ISA. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Hear This. If you have any questions you'd like answered or future topics you'd like us to explore, please send us an email at info at isae.org.